Hey everybody, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Real Talk podcast. We hope that these discussions will inform and inspire you to engage in your own Real Talk. Today's episode is brought to you by our official sponsor, Trivan, builders of custom trucks, trailers, and enclosure buildings tailored to your needs. Be sure to check them out at www.trivan.com. A big thanks to them for making these conversations possible. Now, on to the episode. Hey everybody, welcome to the Real Talk Podcast. We are back in action after our summer break, so thanks for allowing us to do that. Um, it's good to be back at it. Uh, we're excited actually for today's episode. It's going to be a lot of fun, an interesting topic we have at hand. Uh, I guess maybe I'll give you the guest first, uh, although uh, if you uh, click play on this, you probably know who the guest is. But today we have uh, Pastor uh, Bill DeYoung, and he's from the Blessings Christian Church. Uh, some of you may know who uh, this fellow is in Hamilton. <laughs> And uh, yeah, we're going to be talking today about youth culture, uh, what that means, uh, the trends that uh, Pastor Bill has been observing throughout that uh, in his research and in his work at Redeemer University. And then we'll we'll talk about uh, more extensively what it means for the church and uh, how that uh, will impact the church there. So uh, yeah, without further ado, Pastor Bill, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much for having me as a fellow podcaster. This yes. is a real treat <laughs> for me to be here, to be on the other end of the interviewing table. But kudos to you. You're doing a great job with your Real Talk uh, podcast, and it really is a treat for me to be here as well as a guest. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, he's uh, Pastor Bill is the co-host of uh, Tyrannus Hall. So if you uh, haven't uh, checked that out, please do. It's, uh, they have some great content there as mm-hmm. well. So uh, we have an outline done up here, and I think that's probably a good place to start. So do you want to just um, give people, yeah, we'll, we'll start with point A. Uh, you have written here the sociology of religious youth, but maybe give a bit of a background to do how you got into this topic of, uh, of youth culture and the trends uh, emerging there. And then, uh, and then we'll work through it from there. So maybe it's the background. Sure, and it may seem quite odd on the surface for an old man to be talking about youth culture, (laughs) but uh, there is a reason for the interest that I have and for the knowledge that I've acquired, and that is uh, several years ago, I was invited by Redeemer University to teach a course in their religion and theology curriculum on youth culture and spiritual formation. I was somewhat familiar with youth culture just from reading the newspaper and magazines and so forth, but I'd never done an in-depth study into youth culture. Mm -hmm. So when you teach a course, you, of course, need to amass a large body of information, some of which you're imparting to the students. So I spent considerable time studying trends in youth culture. What are the dynamics of youth culture? And then how can the church address these uh, demands? And when it comes to youth culture, there is a lot of sociology. So uh, there are sociologists who research patterns and trends that exist in youth culture and then relay this information to the public. And then other theorists will take that information and begin to draw conclusions and make observations. And probably the most significant sociologist in the area of religion and especially youth and religion, is Christian Smith, who's from Notre Dame. And he's published uh, a series of three books, but he began by studying the life of religion in American teenagers. And a lot of his observations ring true for Canadian teenagers as well, and there's spillover into the church. So he was the one who coined the expression moral therapeutic deism. And he used that expression to describe the new kind of emerging religion that characterized 
American teenagers in particular. And he found that this was true across the board, regardless of religious stripes. So whether you're Christian, Muslim, Mm -hmm. Jewish, or whatever, but a kind of reconfiguration of theology that he found concerning that I find concerning as well. But it's a new view of God. So the moral part is that God wants us to be good. Good people go to heaven. Um, The therapeutic part is God exists so that uh, he can help us when we have difficulty. We can pray to him. He hears us. And the deism part is God isn't really that active in the world, but he's available Mm -hmm. to you if you want to pray and if you're in some kind of crisis. Um, And this, in fact, is what you find in a lot of youth, even in Reformed churches. If you ask youth to give a testimony of why they're a Christian or what it means to be a Christian, they'll often invoke this kind of language. Well, you know, I believe there's a God. I believe uh, he has a plan for my life. Uh, My destiny is bound up in his plan. Uh, I'm I'm grateful that uh, when I um, enter into a crisis, I can pray to him and he hears and so forth. And what people don't realize is that this is what just about anybody would say on the streets of Hamilton. If you were just to survey people randomly, this is the kind of language you would hear. And so there's nothing actually distinctively Christian about it. It's language that could be shared by Muslims and Mm -hmm. by Jews and by Christians and even uh, those who don't identify with any of these religious stripes. Um, And that's the concerning part. It's this idea almost that there's this generic religion that has maybe different shells. Uh, Well, one shell might be Christian, another shell might be Buddhist, another shell might be Muslim. It doesn't really matter which shell you're in. Mm -hmm. But this is what God is about. And and that's concerning for us because it doesn't represent genuine Christian faith. It doesn't represent surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, for instance. When did you see this in your research or when have people observed this trend becoming a thing? Is this the last five years, 10 years? Or are we talking maybe like from the year 2000? When did this start? I'm trying to remember now when Christian Smith's book first emerged, but I believe it was early 1990s, and that was based on research over the previous year, so probably late uh, 1980s, early 1990s. Um, It's interesting, there are Canadian researchers who uh, have argued that we've moved beyond moral therapeutic deism to something that they call universal Gnostic religious ethic. And it's very similar, but with this added dimension that youth sometimes have this um, kind of Gnostic element to their faith, which they believe uh, gives them a kind of special insight that their parents don't have. And you kind of encounter this sometimes with youth where they have convictions that are different from their parents. And they sometimes use the language of all oh, my parents just don't understand. They just don't get it. Mm-hmm. So Gnostic mm-hmm. insofar as it's a special kind of enlightened yeah. view that others don't have access to, or that others don't have. Hmm. That sounds really familiar for our culture. Like you hear that a lot in, in just, I guess just about any discussion around, you know, progressive issues, right? Hasn't yeah. that been the case for like the last 50 years though? Each successive generation thinks they're, wiser than the past 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I think there was. I think there was a time when people deferred to yeah. older people, and it's interesting. It's a cultural phenomenon even today because. Um, you know, I'm presently quite involved with international student ministry. And so I meet students from the Middle East, from Iran and Iraq and uh, the Far East from China, uh, the Near East from India. And I've discovered that in these cultures, many of which were traditionally hierarchical, there is still a kind of deference and respect for older people and listening to your elders and and respecting your professors and that sort of thing. So I think there is something kind of uniquely Western, maybe even North American Mm. about the idea that youth have today that they know better perhaps than a previous generation or than older people today. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Is that more like an, an, is it more knowledge in terms of, uh, having received more insight or more, yeah, like more knowledge than their, than their parents, or is it more, uh, just, just throwing off the idea that you, anyone could have experienced what they experienced yeah. because they lived up in a, they grew up in a different time yeah. or, um, their experiences, you know, their parents can't imagine what they've been through. And that's, like, that's a very good question because it's a bit of both. So mm-hmm. what distinguishes, the youth generation, sometimes called screenagers, is the tremendous access to information that they have that the previous generation didn't. I'm of the age where I don't think immediately to go to YouTube when I have a problem, when Mm. YouTube is a great place to go if you want to learn how to fix a problem in your car or whatever. It's Mm. not still, it's not my first instinct. So I think, yeah, so youth have access to all kinds of information and the assumption is they're gathering information that their parents never gathered, so they have more information. But then secondly, there's also this other component where youth now are much more inclined to look inward for insight and wisdom and moral guidance than outward. Mm. So this is what is called expressive individualism. Charles Taylor in his book, A Secular Age, uh, speaks of the age of authenticity, whereas previous generations would defer to an external authority, elders, parents, tradition. Now youth are inclined to look inward for moral guidance, you know, believe in yourself, follow your heart, live out your destiny, um, follow your conscience, this kind of thing. So much so that um, for many youth, it's almost immoral to do things just because somebody else said you should do it. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't resonate with your own heart, it's wrong to do for many Mm -hmm. people. So it's actually a a bit of both where it's, yes, more information, uh, having access to to um greater information and this kind of turn inward uh that you know one's mm. own heart is the moral guide and one's conscience can uh discern for you what's right and what's wrong mm-hmm. what, what are some of the theories that um sociologists have as to why that trend has emerged um Again, I think there's uh, multiple answers that could be given to that question. One that Christian Smith himself proposes is that uh, youth find problematic elements in their religious upbringing. Um, And maybe for Christians, there are things in the Bible that 
they don't agree with, or there's theology that they resist, but they still want to be believers in some sense. And so they, they, they kind of uh, dumb down mm-hmm. uh, theology to something very generic, uh, such that their parents aren't overly worried because they're saying a lot of things that sound good. Oh, I believe in God and I pray to him and I believe my life is in his hands. Kind of enough to to keep the parents satisfied and yet there's a distancing from uh, the sharp edges, let's say, of the Christian faith, from the, the real demands that the gospel makes and that Jesus makes. Uh, so that would be one thing in particular. Another factor would be just the the greater familiarity that youth have today with other religions. Mm. So there was a time where if you were a Christian, you, it might be possible for you to grow up and never meet a Muslim yeah. or a Buddhist. That's becoming increasingly impossible, especially if you're in an urban center like Hamilton, you go to McMaster or Mohawk or something like that. You're yep. running into people of other religious stripes and, and, and it's often, and, and the, the first thing that youth sometimes um, observe is how similar people from other religions are. And they say, oh, well, you know, my Muslim friend is actually not so different from me. And so maybe we're actually kind of believing the same thing. Uh, it just has a different shade, whether mm-hmm. you're a Christian or Muslim. So I think those are two variables mm-hmm. that help explain that. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't want to jump too far ahead. I mean, my my mind immediately, well, maybe because I'm a guy, it's like you, your mind immediately jumps to, how do we fix this? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, I do want to understand like, yeah, where did, where did this come from? But then also like, what are the the things that are driving it? So like, I mean, we, we talked before we went on air or, you know, we started recording, we were talking about social media and things like that. Like, how is the internet yeah. and social media and, and these kind of, um, ways of connecting people, you know, providing information and, and like, how is that the rise of that in the, you know, since maybe 2000 or yeah, even the early nineties, like, yeah. Is how is that kind of, you know, assisted or. Yeah. It's really huge because if you think, uh, how youth are being catechized and discipled today, it's often through internet and social media. If you go to church, you hear your pastor speak for, you know, 45 minutes in the morning. And if you have a second service, you know, 30 minutes in the evening, but youth are being discipled and catechized by the internet, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, whatever. I mean, I don't know what the numbers are anymore, but the, the, the hours that youth are online is staggering. Like it's, it's, it, it, if you look at it, it looks like a full-time job. Like it can be 40 hours a week. (laughs) No, it's, it's, it's just (laughs) staggering. It's eight hours a day. And you're like, well, there's gotta be a more productive way to spend those eight hours than scrolling through Instagram or watching YouTube. But yeah, so the, the internet, uh, social media is definitely a huge factor. Then coupled with that, you have these these new kind of subcultures that emerge online and that reinforce certain beliefs. So let's say you have a problem with the church and maybe it's even the reformed church. Does it 
take you long to find some kind of group online, mm. Facebook, social media of people disgruntled with the Reformed Church. Fellow complainers. Yeah, yeah, fellow complainers. And then you're commiserating together and you have mm. community and that gives you even uh, right. greater conviction and boldness about it. So, yeah, it's, I mean, you just can't under... Uh, estimate the tremendous mm. effect social media has. And we're still even just learning how this works. Mm. Um, I'm a digital immigrant. Uh, I did not grow up in the digital world. You gentlemen are digital natives. You grew up in the digital world and your parents are also digital immigrants. And so mm. we're, we're trying to figure this all out. And and we, we've made mistakes as parents, right? Uh, a lot of parents were naive. Uh, I remember I pastored a, a, a couple in Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, she said, yeah, we, we would never let our uh, teenager have a phone, you know, because uh, mm -hmm. we don't want, uh, you know, our teenager texting with people and we don't know about it. So, so we gave him an iPod. <laughs> yeah, right, right? not realizing that with an ipod uh, yeah, thing. you could do everything a phone can do yeah. basically so a lot of naivete and we're we're still struggling with figuring out how to how to parent and and basically mm. you find I, I don't know what what you guys would think about children like would you permit your teenagers to have uh, a, a phone when they're in high school or I mean, yeah. you have two kids. It's interesting because I'm, I'm only like, it feels like between the, the two of us, I'm, I don't feel much older in reality. Like when it comes to technology, I feel way older and yeah. I'm like, it's, there's not much of a gap really. Like six years socially, though, it was, it was like big socially, enough. like we're going through almost the same life stages. We're, we're talking about the same issues. We're not, it's not like I'm talking down to Lucas, but then right. when technology I'm just like, I mean, I'm fairly, I don't like to get involved in technology too, too much, but the things I understand as a given, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, yeah, you said I'm a technology native, but I grew up in the dial up age. So, <laughs> okay. and, and being in the country even makes right. it worse, but just the gap between the two of us in that respect, you know, it puts me at a disadvantage. So I would, I mean, I definitely lean more toward don't give your kid a phone. Yeah. High well, school or, so this is what I find actually like, with, with youth who have like phones as appendages to their body. They're usually the ones who are saying, I would never permit my child to mm -hmm. have because they've, is, yeah. they've experienced all the negativity associated with having, um, you know, yeah. a, a smartphone and, uh, and didn't have insightful parents to know what all, what these things could all do. I tend to have yeah. a softer approach, but it's the youth who have lived through the, 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 you know, the smartphone age yeah. that tend to be much more critical of it. Yeah. Than, you see it with the, like the big tech giant you yeah. know, guys who run those things like Zuckerberg's kids don't have the well, technology. There, there you go. Isn't and, that interesting? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that interesting? People who develop this stuff won't let their kids yeah. use it. They don't, they turn off all their cameras on their yeah. things. They know what it can do, right? Even but, I'm, I'm showing my age when I use the language of smartphones because my, my sons always remind me <laughs> all phones are smart well, there is, nowadays. Yeah. I wasn't right? going to say it, but yeah. Yeah, whatever. I'm just a digital native. Yeah. So. yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah it's interesting. I don't know. It, there is definitely a gap there, even though I just... I feel like if we talk, like I have a sense more of how social media operates, yeah. whereas that was you. It's not more as much research for, you. for me, or or, and I'm also less inclined to like. I would never like TikTok to me is like 
as soon as I see that platform, I'm like, oh, okay, no, 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 no. Like, it's yeah. just something that I'm just like, I know what it is because I've went through Facebook. But, right. You know, I kicked the Facebook thing because I think everyone in, yeah. you know, in their 20s kicks it. Yeah. And then they pick it back up in their 50s or something. And then, um, but something new comes along and I, and you, you're not like immediately jumping on it. Well, but, I, I had that exact experience with TikTok. For me as a pastor, it's like, okay, I want to be very familiar with all of these expressions of social media. And mm-hmm. so I got Facebook pretty early on. I got on Twitter, I got an Instagram, but I drew the line at TikTok. It's like, nah, I'm not going to be part of this. I'm, I'm, yeah. so I've never downloaded the app. I've never had a TikTok There's no, account. Yeah. It's more uh, like a time waster than it is like a, a way to communicate with anybody yeah, or learn anything about anybody. They're so. getting way better at sucking you in. Like yeah. each, each iteration of social media is oh, like more and more Oh, I think so. Addictive. I think so. Yeah. yeah. 100%. But yeah, to your point, like, to, like, I think people who have lived through it, that we're seeing a generational move where, um, people who have lived through the technology a little bit realize, okay, this is a little dangerous for me. Maybe yeah. I won't give this to my kids or yeah. when I introduce it, I'll introduce it in such a way. Like how my parents didn't, their parents just handed you a phone and then said, okay, I don't know what the app store is, but go nuts. And now right. it's more like people are paying attention to what their kids have on their phones. And correct. Even though these kids, a lot of kids will have phone in elementary school, or even yeah. like, or, or high school. Like, yeah. It's almost and, and, a given in high school. When I, when I went to high school, I think maybe three people had a phone and it right. was like after high school, you get a phone. And I don't want to come across like a Luddite who's uh, anti-technology, who thinks that the way forward is the way back or anything like that, because the church can use social media for good. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, almost every church nowadays has some kind of promotion on social media, Facebook, Instagram, uh, even YouTube, you could argue, is a social media uh, platform, right? So, uh, but yeah, and I think it is good to fill social media with as much good content as we can yeah so and that's this podcast is contributing to that that's so, true uh, that's yeah. right yeah. Yeah. So we're, yeah we're not social media i guess we're, <laughs> we're just media that's right <laughs> yeah. just go back to the youth thing though there's like there's so many factors at play in terms of kind of spurring on this moral therapeutic deism mm-hmm. and i think one of them is social media and it's like it's focus on the individual and you see it with with creators and whatnot too on social media it's a very authentic connection from creator to fan. It's a very personal one-on-one sort of thing. And that just lends itself to this whole idea of like inward focus, authenticity. Yeah. And yeah, uh, maybe you can speak yeah. to that. And then well, I also want to get to yeah, the data thing too. Sure. Um, so the whole emphasis on authenticity, I mean, it's even it's actually, discernible in yeah, your yeah. podcast name, Real That's Talk, right? Yeah. So not fake, authentic mm-hmm talk and the language of real and authentic is all over the place and it's not necessarily all bad there's like 65 real talk podcasts are there so. really are you, are, are <laughs> there's you're, a lot no yeah. you're the only one i know and listen to <laughs> yeah. um but what what i've discovered is that because of this uh, emphasis on authenticity we now have mistaken views of hypocrisy Sometimes I will encounter people who say, oh, you know, I don't think I go to church because I just don't feel like it. Or I don't think I should pray when I don't feel like it because then I'm not authentic. Mm -hmm. Or Mm -hmm. I'm hypocritical. Mm. And hypocrisy in the Bible is not incongruence between desire and practice, but it's between profession and practice. The fact is we are to 
wage war against our desires. And to be a moral person is to do things in spite of desiring to do those things. It would be a very, very sad world if we only helped old ladies across the street when we desire to, mm-hmm. right? But we feel a, a compulsion to to help people when we don't feel like it. And that's not hypocrisy. Yep. But it doesn't align with this theory of authenticity that you're you're always living in perfect alignment with your desires. That's just not true to life in general. And so I, I get bothered when I hear the term hypocrisy kind of hijacked to describe something the Bible didn't intend for it to describe. Mm. If you live in a way that contradicts your own personal desires, that may be an indication of your um, sanctification, of, of your moral strength. It's not an indication of your weakness. A hypocrite is somebody who doesn't live in line with what he professes. That was the nature of Pharisaic hypocrisy, at least. And really, you know, when Paul talks about living by the Spirit in Galatians 6, the essence of living by the Spirit is by waging war against the desires of the flesh. So we we the Christian life is a battle against desire, and it's not giving in to, des, to, to desire so that you can be authentic. You know, I'll share something with you very interesting. Uh, you know, so there's all this language about follow your heart and be authentic and believe in yourself mm-hmm. and don't let other people tell you how to live. I was watching a documentary, you can find it on YouTube if you doubt me, on Jeffrey Dahmer. Do you remember, you know what Jeffrey Dahmer yeah, is? He's a murderer, a mass Yeah, he was like, he was a serial killer. Chopped and people up or something? Yeah, oh, just very, Crazy. very gruesome. I wasn't yeah. going to, I wasn't going to disclose the details <laughs> Sorry without a trigger warning, yeah. but, but you did and that's yeah. fine. Right. Real talk. Um, yeah. uh, but. You know, he's, he's interviewed by someone and he uses the language of, I was just tired of not being the person I wanted to be. I was tired of living my life to make other people happy. I just wanted to be free and do the kinds of things I really wanted to do. I think he even uses the language. I just wanted to be authentic. Now, this is the language that Jeffrey Dahmer used to account for his serial killing. Mm-hmm. So that should be a little alarming, right? That mm. maybe it's not always a wise thing right. to do what you <laughs> desire <laughs> and to be authentic. In yeah. fact, you could argue that the only people who really follow their heart and trust their conscience are narcissists yeah. or mm-hmm. worse, you know? Yeah. 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 yeah that's interesting. Like, I, I, don't know, I mean, my mind goes back to Jordan Peterson quite a bit, but he, he'll say things like I act as if God, I, exists yeah but he doesn't wouldn't say he believes in god right and that kind of reminded me of the same thing it's like you say what you believe but now you have to act like that but just because you don't always act like that doesn't mean you know you don't believe it just means that right you're not acting properly right so there's there's not like and it's not that you're a hypocrite or that you're evil because of it it's because you're sinful and there's there's like so there's a bit of a disconnect even in and a guy like Jordan Peterson, where it's like belief and, and, and sin, like, yeah, but he doesn't really align those like in a Christian manner. Um, and the same thing, yeah, like what you're, yeah. what you're mentioning, like, no. it's not, it's not hypocrisy to live, you know, you know, properly. And while your sinful self is saying live like this. Right. 
Absolutely. Right? I mean, you, you find this in terms of marriage as well, where people check out of a marriage because they say, oh, I'm no longer in love yeah. with my wife. And so yeah. it doesn't make sense to stay married. You know, I've fallen out of love. I, I, I want to say to people like, well, you need to fall back in love. Yeah. And, and, um, I think work and, back and, in love. I think is and <laughs> there are many uh, moments in a marriage where you need to be loving to your spouse, even though you don't have an ounce of love feelings in the mm-hmm. moment, right? That'd be a very sad marriage if you only showed love to your spouse when you felt like it. Mm-hmm. But it's about choosing to love and it's about being committed to love and it's about following Christ and being committed to Christ through those moments where we don't feel like it, and we'd much rather do something else than what Jesus is requiring us to do. Right. That's self-denial and taking up one's cross. Yeah, you don't hear that a lot. No, and, no. But it is, it's all that expressive individualism thing, right? Yeah. Like it's like, I mean, you're rarely going to feel like showing your love for someone when they don't show love to you. So, but like. It, yeah. anyone who has sense is going to say, well, we know that's good. not true. You know, it's not true. Like well, physically is always a good example. Like, yeah. I yeah. want to go to the gym. I want to work out. Right. If you don't right. do that every day, you're a fat slob. And then, like, but everybody yeah. feels terrible. Like, you have it with everything, right? Like, I don't want to go to Bible study. Yeah. When you go to Bible study, oh, that was great. I don't want to go yeah. to Bible study. You know, like you have it, you have it every week and yeah. be, you know, and yeah, and be we, in a, Well, and that's, you know, I'm fond of this line from Dallas Willard, who says, it's not about trying, it's about training. And really, that gets to the essence of Christian sanctification. Uh, You know, we we, we languish in in our walk with Christ, and we sometimes say, but I tried, or I will try. And, but really, it's, it's about training. And it's about discipline. And there's no easy way to be disciplined and feel like immediate gratification. Uh, we have to train our souls in a, in a way very similar to training our bodies. And we do what we can in order to do what we can't. So, mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to develop a, a habit of daily Bible reading, um, let's say you want to read, you know, three chapters a day. It's probably not a good idea to start off with three chapters a day, Mm -hmm. but work yourself up to it. Maybe just read three verses a day and then maybe add to that. Because if you're training for a marathon, you don't start off by running a marathon. You start Mm -hmm. off by running half a kilometer, maybe until you conk out and then you, you keep adding, but you're training and it's through the, the training that you get, uh, uh, persistence. And the fact is, yeah, it's, it's not immediately enjoyable. Nobody training for a marathon loves the training bit, you know? Mm. So yeah. mm. it's such a sneaky attack because eh? it just resets the framework. If you're in a, a, a moral crisis of some sort, you look like if you have product of this age, you're naturally going to look towards yourself, yeah, which is what you, you feel like that mm-hmm. is where if you're being authentic, you have to listen to yourself yeah. and that's where you're going to get your moral guidance from. And since we know as reformed Christians, we are sinful human beings. That's going to go poorly for you. That's and right. It's, yeah. It's so, uh, it is a sneaky attack from the well, devil. Well, and you could ask people who live by the slogan, following your heart. How's that working for you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't, it, it doesn't well. generate very good fruit and the good fruit in life is often on account of 
people not following their heart. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's all kind of tied into a, hey, like this whole, um, um, you're not thinking about the future too far. You're just working for today and you yeah. spend money for today and you don't say there's no, yeah, you're not, uh, you're not thinking about the long term. It's just about satisfying your needs for today. And that's not a good long-term strategy. Do you, it's, it's, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, do you think that's tied in? Cause so many people my age and younger, like generation Z and whatnot are, um, they're lost. They, they don't know what they believe really. There's just high degrees of depression and whatnot. Um, but I think that largely is because they rely on themselves for, for their guidance. Um, do you think, uh, do you think that theory makes some sense? And then how does that tie into, um, yeah, the expressive individualism that we've been talking about? Yeah, I think exactly. So to me, it's not liberating at all to say to somebody, you need to find yourself, you need to construct your own identity. <clears throat> you need to follow your heart. To yep. me, that's a burden too great to bear and it crushes people. Yeah. So as Christians, we believe that our identity is given, not created. It's received, not constructed. And there's a tremendous gift in that. Um, I just did an infant baptism at Blessings this past Sunday, and I, I was just reflecting on how beautiful a thing infant baptism is, where the child is going to grow up seeing himself or herself as a son or a daughter of the father who belongs body and soul to the savior whose spirit is going to indwell this person. And you're not anchorless in a world. Um, You're, you know, I've been thinking of the, um, the category of zero gravity, which is, you know, if you follow your heart, you're in a zero gravity orbit. There's, there's nothing you, there's nothing pulling you Mm -hmm. down. You're just kind of floating out there in space, but to embrace the identity that you were given, I think ultimately is truly liberating. And to say to youth, you know, you need to, you need to pursue your own destiny, find your own uh, identity and that sort of thing. I think it's, it's just overwhelming and it's crushing youth. And I think it's a, it's a large factor in accounting for the tremendous surge in teen anxiety, teen depression. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So the church's response to that should be, you don't have to do it yourself. You are not enough, but in Christ you are. Yeah. Here's how Christ calls you to live. Yeah. I think it's summoning people to remember their baptism they were adopted into a family. I mean, so much of our identity is received. And of course, as Christians, we also are attentive to the identity of our biology, right? This is the way God created us. The universe has a grain and we're to to walk in line with the, the grain in the universe. And that means accepting our biology rather than seeing biology as a hurdle mm-hmm. to overcome, right? Yeah. So even our I- identity as sexed individuals, male and female, is given. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we receive. Now, I think you can be a male in different ways and you can be a female in different ways. And and maybe in the past we were too, um, too sharp and, and, rigid, and yeah, too rigid in saying, okay, this is, 
masculine behavior and this is feminine behavior and girls really shouldn't play hockey and guys really shouldn't cook in the kitchen or whatever. I'm just, I'm yeah, just yeah. spitballing now, yeah. but, but maybe there are many different ways to be a man and many different ways to be a woman, but let's accept the biology at least as a given. And, uh, you know, just think for, for someone in kindergarten or grade three to have to decide for themselves whether they're going to be a boy or a girl, who, since when could that possibly be a helpful idea for a young person? It is literally crushing people today, yeah. and they're making decisions that they in some cases, deeply, deeply regret because they made them when they're young. And they're irreversible. Uh, yeah, and they're irreversible. So, yeah, I, I believe all of this is not healthy for a youth in the least. No. Yeah. Hmm. Do you see that kind of like the revolution, this, that sexual revolution, the f that like fluidity kind of attitude? Is that a symptom of this? this movement in youth and movement in culture or is it is that more is that like the result is that something that's um you think it's coming from has other it, people has it no has it come about because of it or is it some kind of like a tool that's being used to further that like are academics pushing this on youth or is this a bottom-up thing from your research yeah, well, I definitely think it's something that academic elites yeah. are imposing like, on but, youth. But then, to um, what end? Like, what is like? Where are we headed with this? Is this is this moral uh, therapeutic deism? Like, we're we're there, and and you you mentioned that someone thinks we're even further than that. Yeah, um, is that is that pushing somewhere else? Is it or is this kind of the landing spot? Like, is this what the end goal of this idea idea is? Like. Yeah, I'm not. So the moral therapeutic deism uh, predates actually a lot of the Lust, gender yeah. debates. I mean, they're related mm. uh, because of the focus on the individual, for example, and the focus, by the way, on the therapeutic. Right, yeah. Because now you'll discover that morality has become largely psychological and a right and wrong is determined in part by whether you are hurt or offended by something, which is why you need trigger warnings and safe spaces and all this kind of thing. So, so morality has become kind of psychological rather than normative per se. And, mm. and, uh, you know, people talk about, uh, the weaponry of words and doing violence with the things we say. Yeah, uh, so then, you know, speech needs to be policed and, and all that sort of thing. So it, it's, it's all related in ways that it would probably be really hard to say this is the cause and this is effect. The best I could say is that it's, so. it's all part of a broader, kind of uh, cultural shift that is occurring it's just and, yeah, there's so many like tentacles to this idea and and to the, all the movements in our culture and so it's easy to to pick one so say like the 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 sexual thing like the or gender thing like and you can see everything in that lens and say okay yeah. well everything's kind of this is the reason why this is all happening but you can do also the same thing with religion and say well look at this is how religion has changed and this is how people's capacities you can do it politically like once you rid your uh your mind of the idea of of god and a higher power and someone that your um your whole life is aimed at or anything that's pulling you in a religious sense you mm -hmm. get to be uh reliant on yourself and then you 
you know, if you find yourself on hard times, you look to the government and mm-hmm. now you're into a socialist kind of like, well, make sure you take care of me. And this is kind of your duty as the, mm-hmm. the government. And so like, there's all these different avenues of approach, but then as the church, how do we understand the, the, the phenomenon in general? And then, and then what do we attack all of these aspects uh, together or, or at once or, is there some kind of a, like, is there um, something that can be preached that is, you know, yeah. more overarching, like a, yeah. a solution? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, obviously very, the gospel very, very is the well, solution. Yeah. And so I would say, so I think what you have at play are multiple cultural narratives, mm. right? That intersect at various points, uh, some of which go back to romanticism, some of which go back to existentialism, this idea that we exist and then we create um, an identity for ourselves. You know, existence precedes essence. Um, And you use the language of overarching, and I think that's a significant word to use because I think part of the answer is for youth and for adults to situate ourselves in the true overarching story of the world, mm. which is the Bible story. Mm-hmm. The Bible story is the meta narrative. It is the overarching story that explains the world. And there, um, you know, just think about teaching creation. Now, when you teach creation, you're going to teach uh, biology. You're going to teach that when God created uh, the world, he created male and female as the ultimate binary in the creation account. Because the creation account is just, it's just binaries. It's heaven and earth, mm-hmm. land and sea, sun and moon. And then the ultimate binary is male and female. So uh, if we're teaching youth the creation account, they're already being oriented to something mm-hmm. Other than the cultural narrative, right. then you get to the fall, and you mentioned you know, as reformed people, we believe that by nature we're totally depraved. So, move on to the next uh, story. We fell into sin. As a result, our hearts are corrupted, our minds are darkened. Ha! Huh, maybe we can't be following our hearts, or maybe we can't be trusting our minds. Um, then you know you read on in the in the in the account in scripture and you see the implications that sin has and the results that it generates in terms of warfare and bloodshed and hostility mm-hmm. and adultery and you name it but there is in Jesus a savior a redeemer a lord who mends what's fractured and to your point about hope uh, there's a sense in which we enter into today some of the heavenly treasures, uh, as it were, but there's a lot that we're just banking on for the future, right? We're putting our present sufferings in the context of the future glory that's going to be revealed and the resurrection of the body. And uh, so we're living with hope. But that, so I think we need to teach the Bible story and help people um, see themselves in the Bible story and understand the world in terms of the Bible story. Mm. Uh, I mean, you just teach like creation, fall, redemption, consummation, just those four things. And you're going to be addressing every significant aspect of 
cultural narratives today. And I'm fond of thinking of preaching in terms of the language that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you've heard it said, dot, 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 but I say to you, mm-hmm. I think that's what, what preaching is to some degree. Here's what you're hearing mm-hmm. in the cultural narratives, and here's what scripture says. And it's countercultural and often counterintuitive if we've been mm-hmm. schooled and catechized by the culture. But we need to cast the beautiful vision that the Bible does mm-hmm. as well, which ultimately is a new earth with restored bodies, restored relationships. I mean, you think of people today who are at odds with their body or who recognize that there's something broken in their bodies and they're unhappy with it. I always think of the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Who was like, in some ways, a confusion of genders. And there was no hope for him in some sense in the present world, but he's offered a place in the kingdom of God. And and he's, you know, he knows that uh, there's going to be a place for him in the ultimate temple and that he can be adopted into the family of God and all of that. So not all of our problems are immediately rectified, but there's a lot of good news for now and even more for later. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how to, I guess, tackle the problem of deconstruction, right? Because like, yeah. this is the story you're getting sold in the world. Yeah. Like a lot of people, it starts with, um, they feel like they're working against their authentic self. Yeah. Often the gender or the sexuality yeah. comes into play. They move away from the church, but uh, if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, I suppose the church's response to that should be the gospel narrative. Show why it is the ultimate, the truest story of them all. That's right. Yeah, and that's where stories come from, and yeah. um, that is that is the way to to salvation and to to true happiness. Yeah, long-term. yeah, and of course, at the center of the story, telling about the Lord Jesus Christ and um, encouraging a relationship with Christ. Uh, that's how you get away from the whole uh, deism component of it. Yeah. This is a personal relationship with Jesus who died and rose, and your identity is bound up in his. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, we we do well to kind of reverse the impulses towards moral therapeutic deism by by preaching Christ. And by ensuring that youth know who he is and what he did and that they are invited to surrender to him and put their trust in him. Yeah. It's so baked in the culture. I even just recognized it in my like statement to you there, like pursuing like salvation and also happiness. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, happiness is the byproduct, but you're called to serve Christ and to live for him. But it's so in, in our minds and in the culture, at least I find as a younger person, Yeah, yeah. you think about, oh, I just want to be content and be happy. Right. But you don't, you're not living for yourself. You should not supposed to be, you're supposed to serve Christ and serve others. Right. But it's this whole move, like we talked about a bit earlier, away from responsibilities and just, just seeking more and more rights Yeah. and not, yeah, this, this move away from law and from anything uh, being put upon you. And yeah. This freedom that we, we think comes from ourselves, Yeah. but that's not actually the case. So I guess we got to kind of, crack that nut as a church and show that true freedom comes with discipline and responsibility to uh, a higher power, which is Christ. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and freedom is a good way to describe salvation, yeah. right? Freedom from the slavery of sin is language that Paul uses. Um, slavery, freedom from slavery of 
fear of death and so forth, but we're really liberated. Um, even when Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross and, and follow me, you're denying yourself in some sense to find your true self, mm-hmm. but your true self is discovered in following Christ. It's not, follow, it's not discovered apart from Christ. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Fascinating. So, but yet there, and yet there still is in this, in this cultural trend, a desire to follow something. Is that, because yeah, you, you still see it with people that, yeah, it's, it's this expressive, expressive individualism and, and, and relying on yourself, but there still is something in people that wants to look for something else. Uh, whether it be like a community or like you know, we talked about online oh, or, yeah, yeah. or something to hold on to something to uh, believe in or something to work towards even. Um, yeah. Like how do we as a church, as a reformed church, like how do we speak to people like that who are looking for, like they might not be looking for a religion, but they don't know that they're looking for a religion. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Like there's a gap there. There's a void. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's really hard nowadays is the, the cultural divide in some ways is so uh, deep that it's hard to find any commonality, right? Mm-hmm. There was, there was a time where people agreed basically on morality, even if you weren't a Christian and, and that's, that's increasingly more difficult. And so I think part of the challenge is to present the attractiveness of the gospel. Paul used the lang- uses the language writing to Titus about adorning the gospel and showing the attractiveness of Christian community as well. Mm. Now, we got to do some self-examination here. Maybe we haven't always acted as a community in a way that is attractive. But right. perhaps if we think of ourselves as a parallel culture or a parallel community that's so beautiful Mm. and so winsome and so alluring that people want in where they sense a need for community. They're all, people are always searching for community Mm. in some ways, but if they can see the church as this very beautiful, attractive community that they want to join, I think that's actually a good way to promote the gospel nowadays. Right. Do you think, Oh, go no, ahead, sorry. No, no, you go ahead. Okay, I, was, yeah, I just thought about this now, but do you think um, this uh, expressive individualism plays itself out in youth or even adults too when it comes time to uh, to choose a church and even the language of choosing a church? Like, um, do we uh, do you see that as a trend that people seek churches that serve them rather than try to be the change in their own church and serve in the local area where crisis put them? Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, in some cases, at least, people are choosing a church where they're going to feel the best, right? Um, And uh, people can choose to stay in a church, however, for the same reason, right? Um, And I mean, if you look at the evolution or better the demise of let's say mainstream Protestantism Mm -hmm. and look at the, even take, for example, the United church of Canada. If you go to a United church of Canada worship service, in some ways it's very traditional. It's true of the Presbyterian church of Canada. The worship is in many ways, traditional, a very kind of uh, an, a liturgy and order of worship that has not really been changed in centuries hymns that they're still singing that they sang 50 years ago. 
Um, and there it's a, it's a clinging to tradition that is also in a form of expressive individualism where the preference is for the tradition and what we've always done and what we've inherited and don't force me to step outside of the box and do something I haven't done before or, you know, sing a song I haven't sung before. So it works both ways. People can migrate to a different church out of a kind of expressive individualism. People can sometimes stay in a church out of an expressive individualism hmm. where, you know, the the theology is becoming liberal, but the forms of worship stay the same and that becomes the reason for people to stay okay hmm. yeah that makes sense to me yeah um i guess the the side if if you were going to be staying with what you've done typically traditionally um versus changing for the sake of it feels better to yourself there would be some merit with the tradition since it's been there for so long since it should have been informed uh from a theological basis yeah that, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. When I speak about tradition, I'm speaking about the forms sure. of worship, How let's say not, not the theology and the substance yeah. of worship. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So by the way, uh, yeah, one of the things that's important for youth today is to be exposed to the ancient creeds. Yeah. Um, because that is a kind of rootedness and studies show that youth are inquisitive about how early Christians believed, what early Christians believe, and it kind of tethers them in, in, a, in, a, in a world that's very, very volatile. I had an experience of this myself at Redeemer University, where I had one of my students was a member of the United Church of Canada. And I was, she was talking to me after class, and she was lamenting her own youth group experience. She said, we just, all we did was just had fun, we, you know, pizza, it was games, it was mm -hmm. all social. And then she stopped and she looked me in the eyes. She says, I never learned the creeds. And I was like, man, can I clone you? Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, in the Reformed churches, you, you're more inclined to encounter people who are tired of the creeds, mm -hmm. but in the creeds, you get like the fundamentals of the Christian faith that churches have embraced for centuries across the globe. That's very anchoring because what it shows too, is that it's not just the pastor's spin on a Sunday morning. No, this is actually what people have believed historically for a long time mm -hmm. and across the globe, Eastern hemisphere, Northern, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Southern, Western. I don't know if I got all four there, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. So yeah. So um, seeing oneself in the whole of scripture is significant. Um, um, embracing the relevance of these ancient creeds has the capacity to anchor people in like a zero gravity world yeah. where people are just floating around. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Just to see value. Yeah. So no, you have a, a short question. I got like something like this has come to mind that I'm you know, it's a little bit hard hitting here. Okay. Oh, well, I was just going to say, I, <laughs> I like the anchor metaphor. That's what came to my mind right away. And I would just quickly say that that uh, is, is very useful in a world. Like you yeah. say, that is is full of expressive individualism and no one knows what to believe or what is true right it's very useful to have the creeds and the doctrine yeah. to anchor us in a world like that and uh, yeah because and it also answers the the question how do i know this isn't just pastor bill's spin on the pulpit right. on a sunday morning mm -hmm. it's like oh 
really, this, this view has been embraced by Christians for a long time, yeah. and churches of all kinds of stripes have affirmed these statements yeah. mm-hmm. millennia ago. Yeah. yeah, it makes it easier than reading the whole Bible every time, every Sunday. That, well, that too, <laughs> to confirm. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I, this this discussion just just brings brings to mind. See if I can I can formulate this somehow decently. But um, we've talked several times on the podcast, and like I think it it's kind of living in our in our Reformed churches that. Um, a bit of a struggle between what you're describing, like the traditional, this is the way we've done it. This is the, the, um, I, I would maybe not bring liturgy into it, but like the, the, yeah, the form of worship or mm-hmm. the, or the, uh, the style, like this is the Dutch way of doing yeah. it. This is the, um, we've kind of moved into an area where we're questioning, um, is this really the way we should be doing this in today's world? Because the culture has shifted so much since we've, we've mm-hmm. you founded, know, the churches. founded the churches. Right. So is this really like a good model? Um, should we be introducing more uh, hymns? Should we be, um, there's more of like, should we be more seeker sensitive in the way we approach things? Um, but it brings my mind back to, um, well, you mentioned like, shouldn't you default to tradition, which I'm more inclined to because just because I'm more of a conservatively minded person, I guess. But um, it brought me back to something, Bill, like you said, yeah. like um, the, the youth seem to be looking for or or able to formulate, say, something like a dumbed down theology. So their parents just yeah. say, OK, OK, go. That's whatever. Right. Yeah. Don't worry about it. I got yeah. like I'm doing just fine over here. Um, and our churches, I, I feel like, have done a good job of of creating a a culture, but then also like, um, in business, you would call it a system, but like having oversight, the elders, the deacons, the, the minister, the, the way that our communities are built to, Mm -hmm. uh, foster people's, um, faith. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, there's kind of a tendency to, to, to be rethinking these structures, but I find that the structure seems to uh, work well to counteract that that youth uh, yeah. just leave me alone let me do my thing and to hold people accountable to what they you know what right. they believe that, that's a so, very that's a very very good question let me put it this way so i think there's an argument for modifying the forms of worship and doing church not not to um interest youth or to generate their devotion, but out of recognition that the that the society in which we lived is no longer Christian by any stretch, right. but is essentially a mission field. And uh, so to see our to see churches as mission outposts. Now, you know, uh, reformed churches for a long time have supported foreign missions in Papua New Guinea and Brazil and so forth. And in all of these places, there was contextualization and awareness of, okay, how do we best communicate the gospel to Brazilians or to people in Papua New Guinea? But there was a hesitation to do any of that kind of stuff back at home when now Canada itself is largely secularized. So Mm. I think we need to see ourselves as living, uh, our churches need to see ourselves as mission outposts. And what I would say there is I think it's important for churches to have a soft shell and a hard core. So church should be easy to access for people who are not Christians. It should be a welcoming environment. Um, 
uh, difficult terms should be explained. One should respect and expect doubt. Uh, one should not have a us versus them mentality. One should not assume a lot of biblical literacy, but still retain the gospel with all of its rough edges. So mm -hmm. hardcore soft shell. And I think what you find in at least some Reformed churches is hardcore, hard shell. Right. So I think the best image for a church is a peach, easily accessible, hardcore. And I'm afraid that many churches are like a billiard ball, mm. hardcore and hard shell. Right. So um, yes, by all means, uh, retain orthodoxy. Mm. And don't uh, drift, you know, an inch yep. from it. But I think in terms of the forms, we we need to be uh, an inviting community. So people can migrate into the church where they can be offended by the gospel, mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. which is kind of an odd way to put it. But yeah. uh, it's, it's not that I think people shouldn't be offended or unnerved. Mm. But I want them through the door, at least, for a gospel encounter. Right. Yeah, which uh, is it is a consideration. I think that it's it's a growing kind of realization. I I wonder how, I mean, we're asking the right guy, because you've been probably puzzling this through with blessings and, and it is a new... Well, well, well let, let, let me ask this, let me say this before I get, because it's very relevant here. If you ask uh, young people what they love about their church, so let's say, let's mm -hmm. say you have young people who love their church. And then you ask them why it is that they love their church. They rarely mention liturgy or mm -hmm. music. These are not the variables that the youth are ultimately looking for. They might mention it periodically. Oh, I don't like these songs or I love these songs. But ultimately, it's not. Those aren't the things that keep a young person in church. It's uh, that the church is uh, a community where they feel they belong where or where they know they belong might be a better way to put it which is why there's uh, you know there's there's a there's a youth culture well she you know uh she's a, a kind of an expert on youth discipleship and her name is totally escaping me at the moment but she's got this slogan warm is the new cool because there was a time where people thought that the way to reach young people in the church or to retain them was to have like a cool, hip youth pastor, you know, mm -hmm. with the blue jeans and the fashionable haircut and the latest running shoes. And they've discovered that that doesn't really impress young people. Well, it works in America. Maybe on America. <laughs> Actually, these were American studies. Oh. <laughs> what they want is relationship. So mm -hmm. warm is the new cool. There are people mm -hmm. in the church who like love them, care for them, are attentive to them. If they see this as a loving community, that's what draws them. And that's what keeps them in the church. Dynamic right. preaching, charismatic songs, whatever, those in the end aren't that significant right. for youth retention. So to stick with that metaphor of the hard uh, core and yeah. the soft shell, like I, I, I understand what you're saying with the, with the soft, the harder shell, because it's like, I mean, I think we've all realized that as, as reformed churches, like yeah. that we have to be more. Yeah. And we've heard stories. We heard one from, I think it was Tim Challies. This was like way back. He told a, uh, a story about uh, a Cuban couple or someone who came for their church and he was like, 
like Dutch people show up at a certain time and we do this and we do this. And it was like, it wasn't even amenable to have these people like, right. It just didn't work. So, and I think we're, we're, we're grappling with that, but I'm, I'm inclined to think like, so the, I'm, I'm more worried about the core. I think like, how do we prevent the church from then becoming a marshmallow? Yeah. Right? So then what are the aspects of our worship and then of our like how we present to culture that yeah. are inviting, but then also, yeah, like you said, like offensive yeah, because it the gospel is offensive well, to a sinner, but then also like convicting, not losing like that creed language, yeah. not yeah. Um, the things that that the the youth want maybe aren't the things that the youth need. Right. So, in the end, when they're right. old, right? So I, I think there's a lot of liturgical traditions that we need to retain. And um, at Blessings, we, like many other uh, confessionally reformed churches, recite the creed every second service without mm-hmm. fail. And I would never budge on that. Now, mm-hmm. the way we frame the reciting of the freed creed might be a little different. I do a little explanation about why we we're reciting the creed and, and that varies from Sunday to Sunday. But to me, the non-negotiable is the reciting of the creed mm. in reformed churches. You have confessional subscription where it is expected that the church leaders in particular adhere to reform co- confessions, which are acknowledged to be mm. faithful summaries of scripture. I don't think you want to to budge an inch on that either. And mm. I don't think that there's anything in reform theology that presents a liability to being a missional church or a fruitful church in the society today. Mm-hmm. The liabilities are not in theology. They're certainly not in orthodoxy. And I, my colleague at Blessings is a pastor from a mainline Pres- uh, you know, Protestant yeah, church. They, they that, we're working, that, to, we're that, working on getting. To I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, and, and it went very progressive, and it drifted from its moorings. Mm. And the, the last thing we want to see is a drift from the from uh, the moorings of orthodoxy. Right. Yeah, I think like one of the things that like it 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 seems as if it's a hard shell would be probably like church discipline, which is like a mark of the true church is like to have. Um, it seems so uh, seeker insensitive, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, it does, right? Because people come into church, they want to be a member, and then they what well, they got to sign up to be disciplined. Like that's pretty much like people are like no, 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 no. Like yeah. don't tell me what to do. Just okay. Create but, a but place. There, create but, a place for me to yeah. come and then enjoy, even if I don't like everything that's going on. Like I feel you know involved. But is there a way to recast that idea in a way that is attractive? I think what I would like to say to people is, hey, look, you know what? We are too weak on our own. We need each other. Mm. The church is a family where you have older brothers who watch out for younger brothers and sisters and elders are supposed to be older brothers. Mm -hmm. And you know what? If we see you doing or believing something unhealthy, we're going to tap you on the shoulder and we're going to love you so much that we're not going to let you just think or do what you want. So maybe there's a way to recast that idea that doesn't make it sound like some kind of cultish authoritarianism um, right. or something like that. But, I, but in a way that understand yeah, what yeah, love is. Yeah, yeah, right. I, but in a way that love is a judgment, right? Like the 
as elders of a church, you're called to like, you're not casting judgment ultimately on the person you're, you are, but you are judging their, their actions and the way they show their faith and then, and then admonishing them. So that's, it's, it is a hard line to, you know, you want to love them and you want to present the, the discipline or the, yeah, I guess the discipline of the, of the church of being part of a church. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But that's really like the, that's the hardcore. That's like the, that's the thing that no one really wants, but that's the thing that we need because it's so easy as a, as youth, as you go along to hit yeah, your twenties you know and say, oh, let you know me what? say this. I think it's, I think it's true ultimately of every community. So hmm. if I were to go to McMaster university and join the Marxist student club <laughs> and, and become the chair and and then and then disclose that actually I don't have a Marxist bone in my body. Would they keep me as chair of the Marxist society? Probably not. They would say, mm-hmm. "You can't be the chair of the Marxist student society mm-hmm. if you're not a Marxist." Mm-hmm. All communities have boundaries at some point, and I mean, I could not be part of the uh what is it pickleball is really popular now hey like oh, yeah. I, I wouldn't be part of the pickleball club if i didn't play pickleball or i, I wouldn't be part of the uh pro-choice group if i weren't po- pro-choice and if i were pro-life and part mm. of the pro-choice i would be asked to leave so i i think right. every community has boundaries and the, the christian church really isn't that unique there and but i think that the difference is we can frame this in terms of we have a system of oversight for the well-being of people because we love people and we only intervene in people's lives right. with discipline if we're fearful that one is doing something harmful to oneself or to others. I, I think the difference yeah. between those examples you gave is that the church is not just another club. It's an all-encompassing yeah. Like if you join, if you follow Christ, that's like, that affects your whole life. Yeah. And the church is called to, you know, well, it's to also hold like, you account to that. Yeah. The elders well. are given the keys of the kingdom to it. That's, I mean, that's a little different than like having, being part of a legion. And if you wear a hat, they escort you outside. Right. 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 Cause that's not what we do, but to then be asked to leave because you're not quite, you know, right into what we're into. So my- it's, it's more, it's, it is more heavy handed. Like the, the church is. It has more authority, right? It, it there is something cosmic. There's something divine oh, at play. Absolutely, right? you know. I, I was, I, I was wanna... giving an analogy, and yeah. as a friend of mine says, um, if it didn't break down, it wouldn't be an analogy. So, <laughs> so the analogy <laughs> be the breaks truth. down. But I, I, my yeah. only point is to say this idea that uh, the church consists of a community of people that you can be put out of. That in and of itself is not that foreign an idea, right. but you're absolutely right, Lucas. Uh, the church is far more encompassing than any club or society mm-hmm. would be. Um, How do you yeah. manage? Like, so if I if I'm reading the situation right, there's a there's a pressure point. If you take the the solid core yeah. and the soft shell, so yeah. people come into the church, they're welcome. They may, yeah. they're made to feel at home. Yeah, but then they are confronted with the gospel. Yeah. And and the standard that Christ sets for us in the gospel. Yeah. Not that we have to do it ourselves, of course, right. but yeah. the standard is there nonetheless. Yeah. How do you in blessings, how how have you guys managed that? Because I'm sure you've had a lot of people coming off the streets and, and new converts. How do you walk them through that process of 
of being welcoming and and missional and seeker sensitive, but not playing to their sinful, selfish desire to not uh, to to have yeah. God on their own terms yeah. and to not have a standard. Right. It goes right. back to this. Uh, yeah. Well, I think you know. Uh, the pattern, the example would be the Apostle Paul, you know, who in First Corinthians said that prophecy as a gift should be privileged over tongues because it is intelligible. And uh, we don't want people coming to church and not having a clue what's going on. So soft in that sense that it is accessible. Yeah. Um, and, but really, I think that it's only by being super accessible that you can ultimately present the challenging claims mm. of Christ. So even take, for example, the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper itself is a very seeker insensitive thing yeah. to do. And at Blessings, we, we do not read the forms. We contextualize them. And we put the language of the forms in different terms. But I think in the end, the message is actually more sharp than it would be other because we, we very, we deliberately say, and explicitly, if you have not surrendered your life to Christ, if you have not embraced Jesus as savior, please abstain from the table and that sort of thing. And it's the, 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 the offense is not lost in the the lengthy form that is read but everyone understands what's being said at that moment mm -hmm. so the two they aren't mm. necessarily contradictory you use the language of of pressure um i i you might make the case that the one serves the other you need the relationship um, yeah and the thing and, and then for me as as a pastor it's like the importance of preaching the text of scripture regardless of what cultural sensibilities are and regardless of what you yourself may even want to preach, mm -hmm. but let the text of scripture guide you, mm. I think is huge in all of this. That's why we got to keep up biblical preaching. Mm -hmm. That may seem obvious, but trust me, there are a lot of communities where you have preaching and it's just not biblical. Well, yeah. well it is so, tough, I guess. If you meet someone on the street and you're, and you're trying, not being accommodating, but you're, you're trying to bring the gospel to them softly so that their sin you know, that offends you, obviously, and offends God, doesn't overwhelm them and they go running away from you. And then bring yeah. them into church and then immediately preach the thing that you were trying to be sensitive about. Yeah. And try to be like, yeah, if you're bringing well, someone you in. Well, you know, uh, but I think when I when we preach about sin, it's not, you know, oh, you are some terrible, awful sinners out there, mm -hmm. but it's the language of we. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's it's what Christians have in common with non-Christians. We're all, we're all sinners. Mm -hmm. Yep. And we're all in need of rescue. Uh, so even the the dark uh, message of sin, I think, can be communicated in a way that is accessible um, and not overwhelming. It makes sense to me. Like you do need a relationship in order yeah. to to get more of that uh, important, probably the one on one pastoring time to yeah. explain in more detail the theology. It's just <laughs> yeah, you have to understand it in the context of the culture, like we've been talking about. In that, as you explain in a lot of other churches, if you play to the seeker-sensitive model, you tend to lose the orthodoxy and you tend to lose the the creeds and all of the historical teaching and, and the, the core, right? The yeah, hardcore. Yeah, you lose it. yeah. Seeker sensitivity should not extend to the message of the yes. gospel. Yeah. And 
there's a lot of trouble in the wind if it does, yeah. right? So you mm-hmm. preach the gospel with all of its rough edges, yeah. uh, but you create a uh, a community, a welcoming community where people will find their way there to hear it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That's why I, I, there's this, this paradox of wanting people to feel welcome in order for them to be offended or something like yeah. that, which yeah. sounds counterproductive. It does. Mm-hmm. But yeah. It's important to yeah delineate between the two and, and that you, you keep the soft to get people in, yeah. but you hold on to the hard because that is, that is the truth. And yeah. I think in our, in our reformed church context, just knowing that difference uh, is helpful for a lot of people to understand the more, the missional push that the reformed church, especially yeah. the Canadian reformed church has yeah. been under uh, over the last uh, 10, 15 years. I think that's that's helpful for people to understand that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of want to go back to youth a little bit. So you have a, a question here, second to last year, that um, whether the churches should focus more on the youth, or if that ideal like or uh, encourages idolatry of youthfulness. So I thought I'd ask that to an older guy. Then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I think this is a big mistake that churches make where they observe youth uh drifting from the church and so they go to a fix it mentality and then establish you know a program for the youth or multiple programs for uh the youth and that's not getting at the heart of the issue um this relates to what i said earlier about being warm you know warm is the new cool it's about recreating a um a congregation where youth belong and where youth are dignified mm-hmm. um i haven't done much of this but this is what youth studies say that youth should be included in uh the ministry of the church in uh, perhaps even in worship um maybe have some youth take the collection on a sunday or make an announcement uh before the service or play an instrument the argument here is that you dignify them by giving them specific roles in the church that demonstrates trust and love and investment into the future. I think we have to be creative there. I'm not exactly sure what that would all look like, mm-hmm. but I think we I think if you treat youth as youth, they act like youth and if you treat youth like adults, they act like adults. What are some of the ways in which we can show youth that we honor them and dignify them and maybe maybe they serve on committees or teams. Like typically we say, "Oh, you know, you're you're too young for that." Yeah. Maybe it's wise to have a 16-year-old on your promotions uh, mm-hmm. team or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so I good. think that's no, something. It's a, yeah, It's a good point. I, actually, my past, so I go to Living Water in, in Branford. Okay. And yeah. uh, Pastor Greg Bausman's there. And yeah. he was actually making this point. He makes it often, is that we treat youth like they are the future of the church. And we got to take care of them and categorize them, yeah. which is all very true. Yeah. They're also the president of the church. Yeah, they have a role absolutely. To play right now. Mm. And, and we need and to like hold them to a standard and say, hey, like right. you have things to do today. I've also made mm-hmm. a case elsewhere for inviting youth to profess their faith at an earlier age. Because I think that is another way in which we can be very countercultural. Yeah, yeah, countercultural and and denigrating to youth where uh, you know, if they're not 18 and or haven't finished high school, we're suspicious of their profession of faith. 
But maybe the profession of, of faith of a 14-year-old is very, very sincere. And maybe we're doing something harmful by saying, ah, you're 14. We don't really believe that your profession of faith in Jesus is sincere. You're just too young to have a sincere <laughs> profession. Uh, maybe maybe by, by rethinking the age at which one can make profession of faith. And uh, uh, along with this, I don't think this means one no longer goes to catechism class or church education after that. I think you every youth would be expected to finish a church education program, mm. uh, but one can maybe profess your faith earlier in that process than at the very end. That would be another way, I think, to dignify mm. youth and and not like be dismissive of them. Oh, it's just youth. They don't really know what they're believing quite yet. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that like a lot of other denominations, well, not denominations, almost other religions, it's like Christian churches have like uh, become old and all the youth have left. And yeah. for some reason, the, the reform, there is something about the reformed churches that has retained their youth that, um, you know, proportionally a lot better than, you know, yeah. the Anglican church, the United church, the, yeah. You know, some yeah. of these, more yeah. well maybe older churches but i don't know like and yeah obviously we're not doing everything correctly like i think about uh some activities and things like youth group and then uh oh but you know this is a little subset that's not engaged let's make a program for that yeah and then, oh that didn't go good it's like i wonder yeah. why it didn't go good like it doesn't seem to be the yeah the right approach you know to like really engaging yeah, yeah. I mean, we've we've inherited some some very rich traditions for youth. I studied at McMaster Divinity College, mm -hmm. and I was talking to a colleague at one time, and I said, "Oh, I got to teach um, a class at the church tonight for youth." It was catechism class, mm -hmm. and uh, he said, "Well, how many are there?" And I said, "Oh, you know, there's about forty in the class that I teach when I was at Cornerstone." Well, actually, I was in one of those one time. Oh, were you? I didn't go to Cornerstone, but I had my cousins were there, and then I went. <laughs> Forty kids you had in that class? Well, yeah. I mean, it was it was a. I mean, it was Cornerstone. Big. It was huge. prior to Blessing Started had eight hundred people. It was it was a, it was a large uh, church, and he was this this gentleman was saying to me, "How do you get forty teenagers to the church midweek to teach them doctrine?" And I said, well, it's actually nothing I do. I don't. They don't post a choice. They, yeah, just, they right. just show up. Well, and yeah, it's not like I post I put a it poster in the saying, please come to the church Tuesday night. <laughs> but it's this, it's this inherited tradition that this is what you do on mm -hmm. a Tuesday night or, or midweek. And that's very, very good. And that plays a role mm. in youth retention, which is remarkable mm. in uh, youth. There are a lot of variables that go into that Christian schooling and yeah. families well, yeah. and, and this kind of stuff. But it's but, part of that hardcore yeah. that yeah. doesn't let youth go. That's right. That, that's like, yeah, feeling yeah. belonging, but then also really the it's the conviction of the gospel. Right. That's yeah. Yeah, and I think that's something that Canadian Reformed Churches, United Reformed Churches have done very, very well. The investment of pastors in youth, yep. pastors teaching catechism class, knowing the youth by name and that sort mm -hmm. of thing, that is super, super healthy. That's interesting because we don't typically have youth pastors, right. which is you hear a lot of more of that yeah. in these other churches. Which is kind what of patronizing. Is, what is that? Well, yeah, I guess a I'm little bit. Saying, but, yeah. What uh, is that? 
position normally? Like what, what is that role? Is it just. That's complex. And evangelical churches, pastors have very specific portfolios. Um, and, you know, there are lead pastors of evangelical churches who are doing things that a traditional reform pastor isn't. That is very good. And so mm. he's stretched beyond his ability. And so they hire somebody to kind of look after the youth. Um, and there are there's plenty of evidence that youth pastors can be very effective with youth as well. But one of the complaints that youth make is um, they want stability and they don't want somebody different every time. And the turnover for youth pastors can be quite high, mm. much higher than, you know, the, the a lead pastor. Yeah. So a lead mm. pastor typically comes and stays for a while and youth benefit from that durability and, and, um, but you know, who are the most influential, uh, uh, let me, let me, let me phrase the question this way. Do you know what is most influential in the faith retention of youth in the church? Preaching? No. Parents. That makes sense. Again and again, studies bear that parents are the ultimate influencers for youth. It's a little counterintuitive because we think of, you know, teens always having friction with parents, but even with that friction, parents have yep. the most influence yep. on a youth. It's the other six days of the week, right? You yeah. So yeah, that that's right. Sense. Yeah. yeah the, the parent is a kind of pastor, yeah. right? That you get uh, 24 seven. Well, it's just not outsourcing your religious teaching to right. the church. Yeah. Which yeah. is like, that's interesting because that seems to me like, yeah, like what Lucas said, like it's kind of patronizing to have a youth pastor. It seems to me like just in my head, it's like, well, are you really like, are, are we just outsourcing our problem to, yeah. uh, to the youth pastor? Like, oh, my kid's into you know yeah. something like they're into drugs i call the youth pastor yeah it's right. like that's not how parents should be dealing right, with right. their kids right which is i i find like is that a well maybe i'll just ask you is that a is that a trend that we see that um i mean obviously the world like we're busy too like parents are busy a lot of mm -hmm. times like parents are you know some parents are working two jobs and both of them are working and not at home yeah and, like are we seeing more of that like you know take my kid away from me all day daycare all day jk whatever kind of well let me say something about that um there's little evidence that a child is psychologically harmed by being put in daycare when he or she is 2 years old or 3 years old hmm. there is a lot of evidence that a teenager is psychologically harmed by an unavailable parent hmm. so yeah. Um, I think what you're seeing is a lot of absentee parenting, uh, which, which might then create a demand for, oh, we should really hire a youth guy hmm. to fix, to, to, to do the kind of parenting we should be doing. Now, why are there absentee parents? It's partly because 
as you indicated, parents are very, very busy. They're working too much. Mm -hmm. Mom and dad both working long days, coming home tired. Um, Parents are not always investing sufficiently in children. You know, hey, uh, Johnny, how you doing? Fine. Johnny Johnny goes to the bedroom and closes the door and gets on his phone. Mm -hmm. You know, is that less common than for the? Is that why that doesn't affect? kids that are young because the parents still come pick them up from daycare still feed them dinner still invest in their evening that's right i don't know why but studies bear out that having a child in daycare when he's two or three doesn't seem to affect their development uh when they're older but Mm. there is a lot of evidence that an absentee parent for a teenager can well, have disastrous yeah yeah i mean it's the, it's too easy and gaming, i know that as a parent of of children like you you're, you come home from work you're tired um well i want to worry about a kid who can yeah do well, his own exactly <laughs> yeah and then, and then the moment you know your son says i'm doing fine you're like oh phew i don't need to pay attention to him right but we can't accept that because <laughs> his teenage- fine isn't fine <laughs> well, exactly <laughs> most often when teenagers say fine they they actually aren't doing fine. Life is, life is rough for, for teens. Absolutely. So oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're getting close to the end there. <laughs> that is some interesting, yeah. It's it, some interesting things to piece through like as, as a church and, and as we like, yeah, as we think about how we structure things and stuff like that, and then also engage with the youth, you know, secular youth and also yeah. secular, just, just secular people around us. So, right. Yeah, man. Lots oh, yeah, and all of these secular notions, they infiltrate the church. So I think we're mistaken if we think that the issues of youth culture are just out there and they're not inside the church. We we yeah. we, we embrace far more of our cultural context than we ever realize. And we got to be constantly checking ourselves, you know. Yeah. Uh, who, who taught me this? Well, it's not you know? even just the youth, I think, either. Like, we talked a little it's, bit earlier, yeah. like, how, so when did this start? Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of people, you could make the case for the 60s. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think it's all baked into a good number of generations yeah, within the church. Yeah, yeah, That it's, it's just, it's just yeah. what's going to make me happy. This church isn't doing it for me. Like, we need a new program for this. Yeah. yeah There's something yeah. about the human heart, right, that oh, kind of wants yeah. that. That's yeah. Yeah. But it's being attentive, yeah. like like we were just talking about, like the don't let your kids be on their phone in their room, and 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 don't be on your phone when you know well, maybe have dinner together, maybe talk together, and then you wonder why the you know your teenager isn't engaged in church is because they're engaged on their phone, and there's all yeah. sorts of different avenues to yeah. go down when you're yeah on your phone. There's other communities like why engage with somebody yeah. you don't really have a lot in common with that church right. when you have forty people online. Well, I think you make a good point that the older people in the church, parents, teachers, whatever, need to model Mm. good behavior with respect to phones. So um, I I like the the rule in families where you, you can't be on your phone when you're in the vehicle or something like that. Because when I grew up, driving with the family was an opportunity for the family to talk. You had nothing else to do. A long but drive home sit. from church. Yeah, talk exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Now, but if every, if every child has a device and they're all on their device, there's no family talk anymore. Mm-hmm. So can we protect spaces for conversation? And cars are nice places to do that. 
No one can go anywhere. Yeah, you're stuck. You're stuck in a seatbelt. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's uh, a lot of people do at the dinner table. Well, it's like and no the dinner table. So let's 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 have a lot of no phone zones. Mm-hmm. I I in the end, I'm not one to say uh, teens should never have phones. Sometimes that may be necessary, but I think we should have a lot of no phone zones. Maybe even no phones in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. No phones in the car. No phones at the table. Those, mm-hmm. These are not biblical rules. Yeah. These, yeah. <laughs> Wisdom but, stuff. Yeah. You'll be amazed how fast your kids eat and get to the couch. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, Very I good. appreciate your insights and and really making us think. This is good. Uh, yeah. It's, we're probably, uh, what are we at, the hour and a half mark or so? We're getting there. So, yeah. It's just tricky, eh? Because we're, on the one hand, you got to watch out for what the culture's doing and, and this whole, the rise of this moral therapeutic deism. Mm-hmm and the serving of our own human sinful hearts. Uh, but on the other hand, the church needs to be welcoming. Yeah. But then still present the gospel and the truth of the gospel. And yeah. 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 It's just that paradox. Uh, yeah. Well, we got to maintain. Yeah. It's a great challenge that the, uh, the devil's working on pretty hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not always easy. It uh, requires courage at times, right? Mm-hmm. To know that what you say is going to be offensive, but, it, again, if if we're immersed in the biblical story, we will see from the example of Paul and so forth. Like Paul rarely spoke without creating offense among some. Mm-hmm. Right from the you know conception of the Pentecostal church in Acts two, there were some who thought the disciples were drunk with wine, and just about everywhere Paul went, he provoked a riot. I mean, uh, Tim Keller has this line, you're not a missional church until you've caused a riot in your city. (laughs) I don't don't know about saying that, but, but But he's in New York, right? So there's a riot anyway. (laughs) That's right. But yeah, we, we have to be provocative and we shouldn't be afraid to be provocative either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very good. Sure. Well, Well, Thanks for Appreciate it. Yeah, carving out the time. Hey, it's been a blast, guys. Thanks for yeah. having me. And that was a wonderful, uh, fruitful conversation for me as well. Hour and a half flies, eh? It goes <laughs> quick. It yeah. goes quick. So yeah, hopefully everyone yeah. listening enjoyed. Yeah. And uh, if you got anything left to say. No, just uh, check out uh, Tyrannus Hall as well. You know, lots of good content there too. So yeah. And Let yeah. us know what you thought of the episode. I'm sure people have some feedback and their thoughts as well. Yeah. So we'll tackle that in a future feedback episode. Absolutely. Till next time. Thank Thank you. Real talk. All righty. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch the show. If you want to send us your feedback, and we'd love to hear it, please email us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. If you want to find us online or social media, we got a lot of great content there. Just search Reformed Real Talk and we should come right up. This show is created and produced by myself, Lucas Holtfluer, and Tyler Vanderwood. And our wonderful podcast manager who does all the editing is Mariah Tamiga. So we're really thankful for her contribution to the show as well. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for watching or listening and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.